You know, I was listening to Donna McNeilis read the uh, Spirit of Prophecy passage that I gave her. She said, what's your favorite? I, you know, um, it, it was kind of long, so sorry about that. I guess next time I, it's supposed to be real short. I should have just said, well, it was the book, The Great Controversy, that brought me to faith in Jesus. So The Great Controversy, we'd be here for a while. So anyway, my apologies. But that's a great passage, isn't it? Desire of Ages 668. Powerful, just great. Well, I hope you're well and blessed and encouraged in the Lord. This will be a great week or weekend, however you want to describe it. This will be a mountaintop experience. You are familiar already with the theme for this week. It was carefully and prayerfully chosen and arrived at. It is God's plan to minister to our hearts this week and to send us from here different than when we arrived. And that's the key. You know, I have a burning conviction that it is no longer business as usual for people of faith. It's just not. The sands have shifted underneath our feet. The signs are screaming at us that Jesus is coming back soon. The world is disintegrating before our very eyes. If we look to the eastern sky, we can just about imagine the, the sky splitting wide open and Jesus coming back. Listen, this is your moment. As a Christian, this is your time to stand up and shine for Jesus. He's looking to us. He's made himself available to us. He has gifted us with his Holy Spirit, the, the, the power to motivate and impel us. Ladies and gentlemen, there's got to be a change, doesn't there? We've been reading for decades, decades and decades about the, the great need of a revival of primitive godliness. We've read about that, but we've got to experience that and stop expecting to witness that corporately and start at the only place we can start and demand that God gives that to us personally. We must have it. Jesus is coming back soon. Our primary responsibility is to yield our heart and be ready ourselves and then, and then go to work for others. It's a great time to be alive. He's coming back soon and we believe in our hearts. Many of us are profoundly convinced that we will have the privilege of witnessing the return of Jesus while we stand here on the earth. It cannot be long. So let us pray and expect that God would speak to us tonight. Our Father in heaven, we've been blessed already, encouraged by heartwarming testimonies, stirred by heavenly music, focused as your spirit has ministered to us already. Now I would pray that you would speak. I'm not asking you that I would speak, but that you would speak, that we'd hear from heaven's throne. No one came here tonight to see a performing seal or to listen to oratory. We're here tonight in the hope, the prayerful hope, that heaven will be heard and Jesus will be seen. So whatever you have to do to that end, we pray that you would do it. We offer you our hearts I ask that you would focus our eyes and ears and minds for these next moments. And I pray that when we are done, we will be able to say we were in the presence of the Spirit of Almighty God. 
Bless us now, we ask you and we pray in Jesus' name. Please say with me, amen. He was a fearful sight. I'm sure many people would have asked what could have possibly become of a man like him. He was homeless. He'd made the choice to live without the benefit clothing would have conferred upon him. Clearly, he was mentally troubled. Like me, you've seen people just like him many places, fossicking in trash cans, dirty, carrying on intense, troubled conversations with imaginary people. He was one of them. And he was a nuisance. The locals weren't kindly disposed to this fellow. They were sick of him terrorizing their community. So much so, they'd had him physically restrained. Now, chaining a troubled homeless man is far from politically correct, but that they did so is an indication of the distress he caused them. He had once lived happily in the community, but by now that ship had long sailed. No one really is comfortable saying so, but now his life was an absolute blight on society. Not only was he a gigantic pain in the collective neck, but he had a happy knack of showing up at times people didn't want to see him. He'd hang around funerals. Imagine grieving family members laying to rest the lifeless body of a beloved family member or friend, and there he'd be mocking them. Essentially, he had broken the restraints with which they had attempted to restrict him. And so what would become of a man like that? Often, the deeply disturbed will just fade away. They'll become ill. They'll die frequently from some cause which in and of itself is not so dire, but with no one nearby willing to render them aid, what hope do they have? No one there to call for an ambulance. I was speaking to somebody moments ago who said, I'd be dead by now. If it wasn't for person A and person B who insisted I got medical help, and I did, and now I'm very much alive. But for this man, there was no such individual. Small problems become big problems under circumstances like that. When a woman working for a TV station in Tampa here in Florida uh, had a wee spot on her neck, she thought nothing of it. But a viewer, another woman, spotted that spot on her neck during a news broadcast. She contacted the TV station and said, I think I know what that is. I had that. It turned out to be thyroid cancer. You should get it checked. She brushed it off until her boyfriend said, well, why don't you? Turned out it was thyroid cancer. She was successfully treated. She's alive and well and still on air. Someone was watching for her, but nobody was watching for this man. Except, of course, for one person. It was no accident that Jesus clambered out of a boat near where this man was. He came running towards him. 
I imagine his friends fleeing from the sight. I would think that Peter would have said, where's a sword when I need it? He demonstrated later. He was prepared to use one. James and John were running and wondering if they should pray down fire from heaven to protect their master. But rather than causing any real harm, this man fell meekly at Jesus' feet. And when asked his name, his answer indicated he was possessed by many demons. My name is Legion, he said, for we are many. Now, we don't want to overstate things, but what we know is that a legion of Roman soldiers was made up of somewhere around five or 6,000 soldiers. So this man was in trouble. What do you do with a man like that? What do you do with the man I interviewed recently? 13 DUIs, nine stints in rehab. He lost a marriage because no woman in her right mind could safely stay with a fellow like that. A man who at run one time ran with a mafia group. What do you do with these extreme cases? The man who on a blind date proposed, they were married days later, and then he descended immediately into alcohol abuse, drug addiction, and, and everything. What do you do with that man? What do you do with a group of millions of people described by Jesus himself as being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Just what do you do? Well, God has been working with cases like that since Eden, high above the circle of the earth, beyond the prying eyes of the James Webb Telescope. The sovereign God looks down at this planet spinning at 1,000 miles an hour and hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour. God sees what we could have been had sin not knocked us off our axis. This God, wanting to restore in us the image of Christ, aching to see us reach our potential, the good thing is this God knows what to do. Jesus summed it up that Sunday night after his death on the cross. That time he miraculously appeared to his disciples. That anxious evening when they were assembled in an upper room. Why? For fear of the Jews. John 20 and verse 21 says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. And then he said to this group of failures, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He was talking to a group of cowards. That's what they all were, every one of them. They were careless, some of them. Jesus had asked them respectfully, Could you wait right there and pray for me? And he was gone. It couldn't have been too long. And while he was gone, they fell asleep. These were the same men he was speaking to. They could not stand with Jesus or even kneel for Jesus in his most trying time. They were theologically ignorant, still laboring under the flawed misconception that this Israel would soon become a great nation and that under the aegis of a mighty Messiah, they would throw off the yoke of Roman bondage. 
Their theology was terrible in part. They possessed a remarkable ability to deny the startlingly obvious. Again and again, Jesus told them very directly, this was not a parable of any kind. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And then he did. And when he did, not a single one of them remarked that prophecy had been fulfilled. Not one of them said, Jesus said this would happen. Not one of them pointed to the Psalms or to the book of Daniel or to the sayings of Zechariah. Not even once. The best any one of them could manage was, we trusted that this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What they didn't say was very obvious, but we were wrong. So what do you do with a motley crew like that? Jesus turns up. He could have, he could have wagged his finger and said, I saw you. I looked for you and I only saw John over there in the shadows. When I went down there into Pilate's judgment hall, where were you? The only fellow who followed was Peter and he followed a great way off. And we know how well he performed that night. Where were you? But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus instead commissioned them. He sent them. And if you are thinking that the sending is always for somebody else. I would like to introduce you to my friend Elijah. There he was, jealous for the honor of God. There he was, witnessing the apostasy throughout all of Israel. And then he said, all right, let's get up there on the top of Mount Carmel. Get the best and brightest of you all on one side, and over here on the other will be me. Why don't you pray out to your God? And if Baal is really God, he will send fire down from heaven. Oh, it didn't happen that way. And then Elijah, Elijah prayed, and he prayed some more. And then people heard a sonic boom, and they looked up, and in awe and amazement, I'm imagining they fled if there was time for a laser-like beam of heavenly fire came all the way down through the cosmos and touched the sacrifice he had placed in order, burned it up, evaporated the water, burned up the stones. It was a victory for Elijah. And then he killed hundreds of prophets of Baal. And then when the rain came, in answer to his prayer, he ran, all, he ran a marathon plus in front of the chariot of that scoundrel king. Think now. He prayed down fire from heaven. He prayed down rain from the sky. He ran a supernatural uh, 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 running race. I know it's not a race. He ran in a supernatural fashion. This was a victory. He was God's man. And then when he found out Jezebel was after him, he ran like a chicken. It's exactly what he did. His faith failed him. How in the world does that happen? In answer to his prayer, God does the kind of thing he'd never done before. Not so far as we can tell in the Bible. And the man who was in the center of that all ran. Ran like a coward. Exactly what he did. 
Now, if you were God, what would you do? I think I know what you'd do. You'd hurry on down. You'd stop him in his tracks. You'd read him the riot act. And you'd say, how can a man of faith, how can a prophet of God wilt the moment the spotlight is on? Wilt the moment the heat gets cranked up a little bit. Wilt when a wicked Phoenician princess breathes threats of slaughter. How could you do that, Elijah? But that's not what God did with Elijah. What did he do? He caught up with Elijah and he said, I want you to go and anoint this fellow to be king. I want you to go and anoint that guy to be king. One was Hazael of Syria. And then he said, I want you to go and anoint a successor. Now, this is a remarkable story. Hang on a minute. Are you firing me? No. Why was God telling Elijah to anoint a successor? Because God's plan was to take Elijah to heaven. Lord, have mercy. Here was Elijah, the failure Elijah. And God responded by saying, I have a work to do. Following which, I'm going to translate you to glory. What an amazing God. So listen, friend, you don't get to shirk this thing by saying, oh, I'm not all that. I'm not the completed article. I still have my weak points. Of course you do. You are a human, and God calls the weak. He loves to call the weak because when the weak have success in ministry, they cannot point to their own weakness and say, it was because of me. They have to give glory to Almighty God. Jesus sends even failures. He sends Maybe it's the failing who need to go the most. These congregations who have lost the plot and they bicker and they fight and they argue. And administ a former administrator once said to me, I discovered, John, that a pulling horse doesn't kick. Your congregation going to get on a whole lot better if you will focus on mission. If you get involved in ministry, if you take the Great Commission seriously, and get up off your pew, and get out into the highways and the byways, and take seriously this thing where Jesus, oh, hello. Take seriously this thing where Jesus calls us, commissions us, and sends us into the field to work in his strength. When Jesus called a group he sent them, and he sent them to change the world. This isn't small stuff. Mark 3, verse 13, And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came to him. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him. And that he might, what's the next word? Send them forth to preach, and to heal, and to cast out devils. Come on now, let's think about our theme again. Revived to witness, united, transformed, sent. We believe in revival. We believe in that, no question. But what's revival for? It's not just so that your ears can be tickled and your heart can be strangely warmed and your faith can be temporarily rejuvenated. Revival is so that you can be moved to revive others. Revived for a purpose. The purpose is that every one of God's people might be a light shining in a dark world. And we know the world is dark. But if I started enumerating the evils, which would be only too easy, 
you'd accuse me of being political. What we are seeing in the world now beggars belief. Uh, so we'll avoid going down that road too far. But this world is dark. Sin is celebrated. The sinners themselves are lionized. Excuses are made for wicked behavior. God's people, in an appropriate way, should be calling sin by its right name. Can you say amen? It doesn't matter if it's fashionable. It doesn't matter if it's politically correct. Sin is deadly. It nailed Jesus to the cross. It'll separate you and others from God. We like it, but we shouldn't want it, and we shouldn't excuse it, and we shouldn't try to explain it away. Ladies and gentlemen, we want it out of our lives. If ever this world needed a revelation of what God can do in a person or in a group, that time is now. Remember the promise made to us in Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. That's now. And gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising that's God's call to us to take the gospel to the world, to actually go and share Christ with others. Dark world. We can't make sense of what's going on. But let me ask you this question, Christian. Too many people getting bent out of shape. You see what's happening in the world, and my question for you would be, well, what did you expect? You read it in the Bible. You read it in the spirit of prophecy. You read it, and now that it's here, don't let it cause you to use your, lose your way. Don't become a bitter critic. Don't become angry. Don't become a conspiracy theorist. Be a Christian. We aren't in this to win this. It's not about our way triumphing over anyone else's way. It's to give God the opportunity to be glorified and be seen in this world. That's why we're here. It's to offer Jesus to somebody else. That's why we are here. We have been told there is a time of trouble coming such as there was never a nation. Are we there yet? Not yet, but nearly. Ladies and gentlemen, there's sin on every side. This is not our time to lose our way, but to cling tenaciously to Jesus like a barnacle would cling to a rock or the hull of a ship. You see, you live in the midst of a world that is marinating in sin. And there's a chance that you'll become like what you are surrounded by. There's a principle, we paraphrase a verse in 2 Corinthians, and make it say, and appropriately so, that by beholding, we become changed. Sin will work in your life like erosion. Erosion works on a hillside, chewing it and, and, and weakening it. You don't have to be a smoker to die from lung cancer. You can die from secondhand smoke. You didn't smoke, but you were near those who did. Proximity to sin is a deadly thing. Drive into Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and you will come to a roundabout about a mile from the coast. And in the center of that roundabout, there is a replica of a lighthouse. Now, the lighthouse in question was... Uh, built and became operational before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It was the sixth lighthouse 
uh, operated uh, in the colonies. The Cape Henlopen Lighthouse. The problem was the geniuses who built it erected it on a sand dune. Now, the sand dune was miles from, well, I shouldn't say miles, a long way from the oncoming tide. But the water would chew away that sand dune at a rate of about five feet a year. So that in 1926, oddly enough, on a warm spring day, the Cape Henlopen Lighthouse came crashing to its death. Not during a storm, not because of some violent lightning strike, but because of erosion. Slowly, surely, almost imperceptibly, the foundation this thing rested on was eaten away. Friend, we are living on the precipice of a stupendous crisis. This isn't time for an haphazard commitment to Jesus. One foot in the church and one foot in the world means you are barely a Christian at all. A form of godliness but denying the power thereof living for the world and not living for Jesus, going through the motions, cultural Christianity, uh, it's all going to collapse like that lighthouse did because the foundation on which it stands is made of sand. Listen, friend, it's imperative that we are connected to the God of heaven. I know that's not new news, but it's present truth. Jesus is coming back soon. Can you say amen? I'm going to mention something here. We can prepare and not prepare. You've read words Jesus once spoke. He told the story of a man who was demon-possessed. But the demon left him, which one would think is good news. The man experienced and enjoyed a temporary reprieve. But the demon returned, found the man empty, grabbed seven of his demon friends, and they possessed the fellow. The Bible says the last, man, the last end of that man was worse than his first. You see, they found him empty and swept and garnished. He was clean. He was decorated, but empty. I bet he was a vegetarian, that fellow. I would guarantee you he returned tithe. My belief is he had read at least parts of all five volumes of the Conflict of the Ages series. But he was empty. Could it be that some of us are acting the part, looking the part, singing from the right page on the hymnal, but are empty? And if it's true, I'm guaranteeing you, these are people who've never gone into the vineyard in any meaningful way. Friend of God, we got to find a purpose in this world. You know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that young people are training to be physicians. That's all right. I'm happier to hear that young people are training to be pastors and church school teachers. Fallen out of fashion now. Fallen out of favor. Ladies and gentlemen, where are the parents urging their kids? I know they have a mind of their own. Where are the parents urging their children into a life of service? Oh, the world has got us bound up. Pursue greatness. I tell you what's greatness. Serving Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sharing Jesus with somebody else. Now, you can do that in myriad forms. There's no question about it. Not everybody had to go the same direction. We all know that together. 
But friend of God, are we challenging our young people? Are we teaching our young people? Serve God. Find a place in the work of God. Share Jesus. If we don't, there is a greater danger that the children we love the most will end up empty and their last state will be worse than their first. Friends of God, it's a curse to have knowledge, to have truth, to have light, and not share it. Jesus said to that homeless man we spoke about at the beginning, well, the Bible says it this way, starting in Luke 8 and verse 38. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. Let me follow you. You've got a great ministry here. I could attach myself to your ministry. I could learn so much. I'd be a great helper. I'm a capable man. Jesus sent him away. He said, return to your own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And so the man did. He went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. And the next verse says, And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. Jesus sent the man. He would have been a great help in Jesus' posse of ministry comrades. But Jesus said, No, I'm sending you. Go do a great work. The man was sent by Jesus as a missionary. That's what Jesus does with demon-possessed men who live in tombs, who break their chains, who make a nuisance of themselves. I mentioned to you another fella. Nine stints in rehab, 13 DUIs, failed relationships, a miserable excuse uh, uh, for a human being. And then Jesus got hold of him. And now he travels about sharing his testimony. He's a bright and shining light. He runs a successful business. He's a, a, a bright and shining light in his local church. That's what Jesus does with people like that. How about the man who proposed to the woman on the first date they were married Days, maybe a couple of weeks later, people said, you're crazy. She said, no, this is true love. And then shortly after, she said, no, I'm crazy. Because it was alcoholism and drug abuse and pornography and, 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 and whatever it was possible for him to do, he did. What does Jesus do with a man like that? Today, he is a ministerial secretary in a conference, leading ministers, growing churches, preaching the word of God. That's what Jesus does. He will take people from the gutter and push them out onto the front lines. Ladies and gentlemen, are you out there on the front lines? Now, it seems like I might be preaching to the choir, but it's a pretty big choir tonight. And I'm asking whoever's listening, what are you doing with the talents Jesus has given you? What are you doing with the funding Jesus has given you? What are you doing with the influence Jesus has given you? Oh, I'm getting hit in this world. That's all right. That's, that's okay. We need people to do that. But what's the plan to actually engage in ministry or to facilitate it so that others can? Friend of God, we got to win souls or die trying. Christianity is just an exercise in selfishness. If you aren't bending every energy you got 
to influence somebody else to come to faith in Jesus. Hearing these tithe reports, it's more than a billion dollars a year in the NAD. That's all right. But show me the evangelistic output. Too many churches are cumbering the ground. If you shut them down, nobody would care. And they're not making a difference. Now, thank God, he can turn them around. He can turn them around. There are entire conferences who don't give a rip about evangelism. Time to make some changes, isn't it? Or are we happy with the status quo? We cannot be. The only reason God raised up the Seventh-day Adventists, I shouldn't say the only reason, the primary reason God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church was to go. Go ye therefore. That's what he said. Go. Teach all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded. He said, I'm with you. With you to the end of the world. It's why we exist. So why would we, why would we squander tithe by doing anything other than, than engaging in a full court press to share Jesus everywhere? Talk to the people who know the numbers of missionaries that we send around the world. Pitiful compared to what we used to do years ago. No, I, I, listen. We're going to come back to ASI again next year and say the whole same old spiel. And the year after, same thing. And the year after, same thing. And the year after, same thing. Until somebody says, no more, same thing. Things have got to change. Well, I don't mean change with ASI because, listen, you can't, you can't blame the corporation. You, you, you don't get to blame your church leaders. You don't get to blame the people in positions of authority. You don't. Because no one is stopping you from getting off your posterior and sharing Jesus with the people that you have influence with. No one's stopping you. No one got a gun to your head saying, don't you dare share that tract. Don't you dare make that invitation. Nobody. Nobody's threatening to imprison you because you're having a Bible study with your neighbor. Nobody. And by the way, i got to tell you this, how encouraged I am. To be in a division where the leadership is all about evangelism. Thank God for that. We have a division president right now getting ready to start another evangelistic series in a major North American division city. He baptized a slew of people. we got union presidents who do the same. Thank God for them. Come on and say amen. It's a good day when the people at the top are leading by example. We appreciate that and we like that. Jesus sent that demon-possessed man. Get out there. He was well, he, 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 a formerly demon-possessed man. Sent him. Come on now. Get out of here. We are never going to wake up out of our sleep as long as we are not sending and being sent. If 12 faulty men could turn the world upside down in a few short decades, imagine what God could do through his church if we let him. It is not numbers we lack. It's commitment to being sent, to going, to waking up out of our slumber, to getting beyond gatherings and conventions and meetings and transforming that experience into doing something for the master. Churches have revivals all the time. I told you about one that is written. It's having starting October 19. 
And at the end of revival, some people are baptized and some people make recommitments. We like them. But at the end of revivals, somebody ought to be standing up and saying, I am going to serve the Lord in the vineyard. If nobody does, we can know that the revival was ultimately a fairly anemic experience. We've been revived to, to, to witness. We're told in our theme this week that, that part of that experience is to be united. Ah, oh, I could get bogged down in this, and so I'm not going, oh, I can't get bogged down in this. Friend of God, united. Don't be a divider. Be a uniter. Don't be that fly in the ointment. Ah, but John, you don't know about it. Pray for your leaders. Pray. Write a letter. Write a nice letter. And then pray. And then go do something for the Lord. Get busy sharing Jesus. Start a revolution. Start united, transformed, sent. Not transformed for nothing in particular. But transformed so that Jesus can be seen in his glory and can use you in a powerful way. As a church, it's in our DNA. Read Revelation 10. After the disappointment, when the book was sweet to the taste but bitter in the belly, God gave the church a mandate. I don't know how much you like mandates, but you better like this one. You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. That's the word of the Lord. That's how we got our start. You know what that looks like? It looks like a group of young people in Montana being led by their local church pastor to sell 900 copies of the Great Controversy this summer. One of them to a renowned television evangelist who said, nah, the author misuses the Bible. The teenage young man said, have you ever read what she wrote? The evangelist said, no, no, I never have, but I've done some research. He said, wouldn't it be a whole lot better if you actually read something for yourself? And the television evangelist said, yes, you are right. And he paid him $20 and took that book. And you can pray that the brother reads it. Prophesying again as conferences, committing to conference-wide evangelism. Friend of God, we, we at It Is Written have the privilege of participating in that year after year. And I can tell you from experience, all that happens is people get converted and won to Jesus and baptized and the church grows. And the people who lie to you and tell you that public evangelism doesn't work should just stop. Now, I don't like to call people liars, but no one really believes public evangelism doesn't work because the evidence is in, and it's been in for decades. So for someone to say, this don't work, it's got to be a lie, right? It, it can't be a misstatement because they know better. You can't be that ignorant. Now, I understand 2022 is not 1952. I understand that. I understand we've got a lot of jaded people. I recognize the Spirit of God is being withdrawn. We understand that. We got to search for new ways and, and better methods and, and, and sharpen up the methods. The problem is the old method works. It's we who don't work. That's the problem. You got to tell me about your car. That, that, when did you turn the key, man? It works perfectly. Friend of God, it's too, it's too late. It's too late to be cumbering the ground. Too late. What does it look like? Prophesying again. It's my friend Mike. Dying of cancer, telling anyone he could meet that Jesus is good, that he's coming again, and that Jesus can transform their life. Dying, terminally ill, telling anyone who would listen. I wonder if we know why we are here. Here. Oh, we'll enjoy the food. We'll see old friends. We'll donate money. 
We'll sing the doxology. We will hear inspiring reports. That's good. Thank God for that. We want that. We celebrate that. But if you think that that's why you're here, you've got to think again. Every one of us is here because God has called us here to be revived, transformed, united, and sent, revived to witness, to share Jesus. We cannot go away from here the same as when we arrive. Now, I understand some of you think, well, listen, is he forgetting that I'm uh, fully involved in ministry and my life, my business is, no, I'm not forgetting that. So, so maybe I'm talking to the other person. Friend of God, there's a work for all of us in the vineyard. Every last one of us, young or old, black or white or Latino or Asian or whatever you might be. There's a work for everybody. And God wants to use us all. Not to just be pew warmers. Not anymore. It's too late for that. 1944, an American ship loaded with supplies... And 1,500 tons of explosives ran aground in the Thames estuary about 35 miles in a straight line from London. The the place was especially unstable. There there are boys around it now and signs, don't come near. This thing could explode. Recently in Britain, I've had some trouble with this because after such a long time, the explosives are now very unstable. And so the Navy is trying to figure out how to get them out of there without everything blowing up. It would be a problem if it blew up because there are people nearby. They say it would be a massive explosion. There's fuel dumps and depots, and it it would be awful. There's 1,500 tons of explosives sitting on the bottom of the river. All that power just sitting there. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do with 1,500 tons of explosives. They were shipping it during wartime, so I guess they had a plan. That's a lot of power just to go to waste. 23 million of us. And the Holy Spirit. Ooh, that's a lot of power. And it's far too much power to go to waste. Now, I don't know how this plays in your experience. I don't know where you are. But I want to ask you tonight two things. Of course, I'm going to ask you if you would make room in your heart for the Holy Spirit. And now I want to ask you if you'll make room in your life for ministry. To be used by God to do something to reach someone somehow with the gospel. I would not want to prescribe your duty. God will communicate to you how you would do that. He will equip you. He will provide the resources. Have faith. This is God we're talking about. But it's you who've got to provide the will. Lord, I'm willing. Take my will and make it yours. I I wonder if God has ever put it on your heart to get involved in a mission or ministry project. To to, to give a little more. To be stretched a little further. To come alongside some other ministry or organization and lend your influence and your heft. I wonder if he's speaking to you about that. I wonder if God is saying to you, now's the time. Now's the time to get out of corporate work and into ministry work. Listen, he doesn't say that to everyone. And it's not always the right time, but maybe it's the right time for you now. Maybe it's time now that that your business is dedicated to God, that the opportunities God gives you, you take. 
He's coming back soon. Like Desmond Doss, we've got to be committed to getting one more. Come on, let us pray together and ask God to lead us in that, in that way, our Father and our God. We are asking you tonight to fill our hearts with your presence, to take our lives and make them yours, and then to take our ability, our money, our talents, our creativity, our opportunities, and use them for your glory. You must, Lord. And when we are not on the front lines of mission work and service and ministry, it's we who miss out. We miss seeing the miracles of changed lives. We miss seeing your spirit work in profound and powerful ways. And so we ask you, Lord, to do a great thing, a new thing in us. We thank you, Lord, for sending us. And we're going to go now. Eyes open, hearts open ready to be used by heaven for your glory. We thank you and love you. We pray with John who wrote Revelation. We say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.